1: At sax.com. You know, I'm not making this art as an ego
2: exercise. This really is just, it brings so much joy to my life, and I want to bring joy
3: to other people's lives. Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. When I think of artists, I think of two categories, right? First, there's capital A artists, like Picasso, Frida Kahlo, Miles Davis, you know, people whose whole worlds revolved around their craft and became larger than life. Then there are, you know, all the lowercase A artists, regular people like you and me, whose creative work helps them through life. But what if you're somewhere in the middle, wanting to try to be a capital A artist, but not sure where to begin? Yeah,
2: hi, I'm Elaine. And i um... I had previously worked in a corporate job, very fast paced. And so to find a practice where I get to find the spark of creativity, I get to think about the layers of watercolor needed to create what I see in my head Hmm. and then work with the paint as it kind of does its thing. Um, And you kind of come to an agreement at the end, like, okay, this is close enough to what I. Thought I could do and make on paper, and it's a super satisfying experience.
3: That's cool. Can you describe one or two of your favorite pieces so far?
2: Yeah, so so our friends were moving away, and I found a photo of a sunset taken from their backyard looking out at the sunset. So beautiful, palm trees, and so much color to it. And so I painted that in watercolor and gouache. And I thought it turned out pretty good for me. Like I was like, wow, like I'm proud of myself. And then I got this super doubting, (laughs) like Hmm. really bad. Oh no, I can't put this in a frame. I can't give this to them in a frame because it's
3: not good enough. So that's interesting. So there was this moment where framing it would be like somehow acknowledging that it was more than just a doodle. Right. That's right. And that was scary. It's scary because I don't, it's even hard for me to
2: say I'm an artist. I say I do artsy things Uh (laughs) (laughs) because I, you know, in my mind, there's this like assumption I have to be like a professional and it's my only job and that sort of thing. And so there's a, like, I saw this meme that was, I like art. Let's make art. This is tricky. This is bad. I'm bad. Wait, this is Okay. I like art.
3: (laughs) And so there's this emotional (laughs) journey you go through. If, like Elaine, you're just getting started on this emotional journey, how do you start to measure your progress? By the number of pieces you've sold? Or is originality a better measure? It's been this, like,
2: nagging, exciting thing in my life that... I, I do, and I share online, and I'm super nervous about it because I don't think it's great. <laughs> but everyone says it's great. And so I feel like I'm at the point where I know my techniques and I have this desire and I, I want to share the joy with the
3: world. But I don't know what my style is or how to find that. If there's anyone who knows how to help novice artists find their style, it's Aaron Dorkin, who's done, well, just about everything.
4: I'm a poet journalist, a social entrepreneur, um, really kind of have spent my life in the creative sphere and ultimately, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, helping people transform their lives uh, and architect the most fulfilling life possible.
3: Aaron's received a MacArthur Fellow Genius Grant, and he's an accomplished violinist who has served on arts councils and committees under presidents Obama and Biden, and he's a professor at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance. Oh, and he's also written books, including one called The Entrepreneurial Artist, Lessons from Highly Successful Creatives. So he's got literally a million insights for up-and-coming artists like Elaine, to follow their passions and even make a living at it. And if, like me, you'd never call yourself an artist, don't worry. We've got tips for unlocking your creativity no matter what you're calling it. So roll up your sleeves, get out your sketch pad, we'll be right back.
0: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. In each episode, Kitty talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or find it wherever you listen.
3: Elaine's artistic journey started in 2018. That's when she and her family were on the cusp of a life-changing trip.
2: I was about to sell our house and travel in an RV with our two kids, two dogs and a fish. And I got diagnosed with cancer that same day. And it kind of
3: threw my whole life upside down. Elaine ended up having surgery and healed over time, thanks in part, she believes, to an alternative form of medicine.
2: During my health scare, I found Reiki, which is an energy healing practice. And it's my
3: other passion. Reiki is a Japanese healing practice that promotes relaxation through gentle touch, and Elaine says it really helped her recover, so much so that she and her family eventually did pack up their RV and hit the road. They spent two whole years visiting 20 states and 11 national parks, and it was on that epic journey that Elaine got more in touch with her creative side.
2: I kind of rekindled my passion for art as we traveled in the RV around for two years. I just reconnected with nature, and that's a lot of my subject matter for my art mm. now. I just I use it as a meditative practice to find peace and calm in a crazy world, and and I get to create like a beautiful thing from that. So, how did you gravitate towards watercolor painting? Originally, I picked it up because we were traveling in an RV and everything. has weight. So I chose the lightest weight medium and the cheapest. And, um, and I love it because it almost paints itself. So you have to have a part of wanting to create an image and then allowing the paint to travel the way it will. And Hmm. it's a good metaphor for life because you have to kind of roll with how it appears on the paper. And so I love that.
4: Well, you know, it's so interesting because I was just hearing your, your story, Elaine, and, and I was thinking, so you you know traveled around the the country in twenty two states and with uh, your extended family, those who have uh, four legs and two legs and and gills um, and uh, and spend your life you know following a passion of helping others to heal and painting and all that and It's amazing, Um, and my sense is that part of that and why you're already able to do that is because you're always seeking, and now, well, that's not enough, right? I want to be able to really have these passions potentially combine into a singular thing.
3: For Aaron, he drew artistic passion from his unique background.
4: Ultimately, I'm a Black, White, Jewish, Irish, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness uh, who grew up (laughs) with a big Afro playing the violin, and uh, so I had gone through these experiences of not seeing you know people who looked like me on stage of orchestras or things like that and then i went into a lesson one day with my teacher at the university of michigan school of music theater and dance and they said you know did you want do you want to play music by black composers which i didn't know existed i did not know there were any black classical composers at that time as a college student and as a biracial multiracial musician viewed by you know americans as as black Um, Which is actually kind of something that I talk uh, a lot with with people is about letting, you know, who you are, who your own sense of identity or your passions in the world, um, ideally heavily influence what you actually end up doing professionally, uh, which can be very empowering.
3: One of the most important things an artist can do, Aaron has realized, is to just show up as yourself. A lot of the things you've said, Elaine, suggest, you, you mentioned this sort of insecurity or self-consciousness, um, wanting to find your signature style. Mm-hmm. I guess I wonder, Aaron, if, you could, if we could step back for a minute and, and if you could respond to that. I mean, you, you started your art very early as a musician after hearing your mother play Bach. And I would imagine for a long time, for a classical musician, you're trying to replicate. You're not trying to create a signature unique style,
4: it's such a such a great question, um, and and it is an issue that I have with some uh, classical music training, right? Which is that uh, it can unfortunately be this exercise in replicating what others have done, right? Playing the same music everywhere you go, and and so I always was trying to break out of that. I definitely think in this creative sphere that finding your niche. Is not only helpful for your own sense of expression, but also tangibly and practically in terms of then your art being experienced by others. So if there's 10,000 people doing watercolor, you know, what makes mine unique? Is it part of the technique I use? Is it something innovative that I do? Is it because of what I'm depicting? What about my watercolor work? speaks in a way that no one else either is or potentially can. That, that um, sounds
3: like the question, but also maybe a little daunting. I mean, what, what if you don't know? Then what?
4: Uh, so for me, diving in and trying, and you never really know where you'll come out with that. Um, So, and that's what actually led to my spoken word art. I was just kind of doing different things. And then I was actually really moved by Langston Hughes and Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poetry. And I was like, you know, this poetry speaks to me and kind of matches this. And so it kind of led me down this path. And then I realized, well, there's no one else really doing this spoken word with classical music thing. (laughs) What if I do that?
3: But notice it's not just innovation without direction or discipline. To make this work, Aaron says you need a framework.
4: What is the passion that I want to follow? I'll be, like go deeper into my poetry, things like that. And then it's like, okay, so now for that to actually take place in my life, What framework do I have to put around it? So, for example, do I, do I have to help pay rent with it? So, in other words, do I need a certain amount of income from it? Do, um, do I need to collaborate with others on it? Are there things that I can do? But then I need partners because I can't do the marketing or I can't do this particular sales piece or, or I don't want to, or, you know, how does that all fit?
3: There are three keys to building this framework, Aaron says. Ideation, organization, and communication. Ideation needs to be continual. Surround yourself with things that inspire you and keep testing new ideas, which means, of course, that some of them are going to fail. Organization will help you work day in and day out. And then communication is how you get that work out into the world.
4: It's Putting that framework in place that enables you to do what ultimately I talk about a lot, which is building a portfolio life. Because so many of us in the creative sphere, we don't just do one thing. We don't want to do just one thing. So Mm. I have a number of different parts of my portfolio life, and some generate significant levels of income. Others actually have the reverse. But from my perspective, it absolutely takes that pragmatic functional piece that often in the creative sphere we don't necessarily want to layer on uh, to what it is that we're doing, um, but that I think is then what actually frees you and gives you the space to do it.
2: I often feel conflicted that I have so many things going on in my life and I'm not giving enough to art um, so to frame it in the context of a portfolio really helps me. yes. Um, I like that allocate too. my time and my effort right.
3: And it also sounds so like legitimate. Like I feel like in my yeah. own work of freelance writing and podcasting and I think of it as just like a crazy quilt uh, <laughs> mix of things, but it I like portfolio better. <laughs> that just sounds yeah. a lot like I'm doing it on purpose. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And speaking of pragmatic, Lessons. I mean, what when you teach entrepreneurship to artists, what is one of the hardest things for them to get their head around?
4: One of the first things is actually doing it. Um, there are so many times where I'm talking with students and they're like, well, and this idea or that idea and so on and so forth. And they talk about it in planning. And then six months later or a year later, like, so where is that at? Yes. You know, So just the fact of doing it and mm-hmm. moving forward, including failing. And I t- teach them about failing forward. So I, one of the exercises mm-hmm. my students go through is they have to come up with 10 ideas every single day. So all of a sudden, they do that for one week, they have 70 ideas over the course of a month, it's basically almost 300 ideas. Now, immediately, right off the bat, 80% of those are probably just, you know, just pie in the sky or trash ideas aren't really gonna, you know, amount to anything. And ultimately, through this process, though, you could end up with after just one month, at least 10 ideas that are actually really, really strong ideas, and five of which would absolutely be viable, real projects you could move forward with.
3: It sounds like there, again, is creating a structure for the creativity, right? So, I mean, I know a lot of writers who just, they cannot get anything done, including myself, without a deadline. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing with your students, right? is creating some pressure, not too much, uh, of coming up with 10 ideas a day. And my One of my original mentors, one of my greatest editors, David Carr, he used to always tell us keep typing until it turns into writing, you know, like just Mm -hmm. stop with the outlining and the ruminating.
4: Absolutely, completely agree. You find a way to build framing and that's why that functionality is so important to release the creativity. Hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. Elaine, how do you stay on track with your creative pursuits?
2: My mode of finding inspiration is nature. I lived basically in a tin can in nature for two years traveling around. And from there, it became more of a meditative practice where being outside and experiencing nature became part of my spiritual practice. And then layering the Reiki on top of that really like combined my favorite things into one. Hmm.
3: And it sounds like you also created a kind of structure by saying, I'm going to sell one piece of art every month.
2: And you did. That's right. And I also committed to if it scares me, I have to do it.
3: Yeah, that seems like a a good litmus test. Right. And, and, of course, it's also sometimes easier said than done, right? I mean, there are a lot of starving artists out there, right? (laughs) That is the stereotype. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about how, how you help artists to balance passion with the need to put food on the table?
4: Oh, yes, absolutely. So I'm very pragmatic. And I'm like, yes, so that's, that's great. And you have this passion, let's say, you know, playing the violin. So first, it's kind of, I encourage them to delve into, so what is that? Because there's many different ways to play the violin. So let's say, hypothetically, that they're like, you know, I've just got the dream, I want to be a soloist and travel the country and do all of that. So first, I just make sure Is that actually what you want to do? So what is that life? Because it may not be what you think it is. And what you may think is, you know, being on grand stages and performing for thousands of people. Yes. And that might then happen once or twice uh, a week if you're lucky for, you know, the 45 minutes that you go on stage and play your concerto. And the rest of the time you're alone in motels and hotels. Mm. So is that actually the life that you want? So um, you're
3: trying to kind of give a reality check to this vision yes, so that people are really, before they saddle up for it, they know <laughs> what the trail looks It's like. critically
4: important. And, and all too many musicians will then not say necessarily win that big audition and then haphazardly put together a life where they're not necessarily fulfilled. And that's where I'm like, you should be very intentional about that and say, if I want to be a violinist how can I then build the financial component of that mm-hmm. so that I won't be the starving artist? Yeah. And so it's definitely that, that reality. And today we have more opportunities than ever. You know, they could build a platform on Patreon using social media. It doesn't take very many people who support your art to build a life from that art making.
3: Next up, we're going to help Elaine and all you other pragmatic dreamers out there find your unique signature style. Don't go anywhere.
5: This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design.
3: Hello friends, it's me again. I hope you're enjoying this episode. We wanted to let you know that our little show, How To, has reached a milestone. We've been around for three whole years now. In podcasting years, that's like 75. That means we've had over 150 of you directly on the show, workshopping problems that have helped countless more listeners. So first of all, thank you. We rely on listeners like you to bring us questions, big or small then you get the chance to talk directly to world-class experts for free. You may notice we often use first names only to protect your privacy, and sometimes for particularly sensitive subjects, we will even allow pseudonyms. So I hope you'll consider writing to us at at slate.com to wish us a happy birthday and bring us your new problems, or send us a voice message at 646-495-4001. Also, please keep sharing episodes with friends or family members who might benefit from a little dose of hope and empowerment right about now. We're back with Elaine, who wants to live a more artistic life, and our expert, Aaron Dworkin. Aaron encourages his students to start by noticing what they're uniquely obsessed with, what they're creating that no one else is really doing. And he's done this himself over and over, including most recently in response to the news.
4: Using uh, poetry to capture issues relating to George Floyd or or Ukraine or these other Mm -hmm. things. And I realized that in some ways I was acting as what I thought as a a Mm photojournalist, but using poetry. And so that then, what otherwise began as just an exploration, and I kind of found myself there. I then stepped back and said, you know what, this is unique. And I literally actually Googled like poet journalist and realized like, oh, it actually is not a thing. (laughs) And like nobody's doing it, which shocked me. And that then actually led me to, well, what if you actually try to define what that is and actually try and build a niche around it, which is what I did, hence poetjournalist.com and and identifying myself as a poet journalist. And now I hope others will kind of hopefully follow in that vein, but um, again, that kind of unique niche.
3: Is there any chance you would share like a line or two from that poem? Ooh, yeah.
4: Yes, no, absolutely. Um, So it's called Poet Journalist. I am the passive man in straight black pants with my untucked white shirt facing the column of tanks as their turrets salute my defiance in Tiananmen Square before my movement falters showcasing my human right to exist, my freedom to persist i am the failed bank filled with the empty paper and promises of people's dreams chosen for their inability to pay like the stray gazelle on the savannah as the lion poaches their prey in the early morning mist I am the twin tower's twisted metal, exploding into crimson blossoms, fading into black entrails and futures lost, shading the horizon of our lives like the passions of lovers before they fall into disarray and forget what sparked their rise and hatred of their demise and events regretted yet still reminisced. I am the 9 minutes and 29 seconds that a black man donning a black tank top felt the knee of dispassionate authority on his full-throated neck before his life with voice was ground into silence that was heard and shook the sugar maple trees of Richmond, Virginia and broke the blue wall more than any afro pick with fist. I am the grist for bottled water office talk. I assist the memory to feel the moments lost. I am the emotion of every story missed. I am the words the newsprint failed to list. I am our soul we must enlist. I am the poet journalist.
3: Wow. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. And moving. It's oh, moving. It beautiful.
4: <sighs> Thank you. Thank you so much.
3: So how does Elaine do what Erin has done in her own way?
4: What is that niche, either specifically with your watercolors or with the combination of watercolor and Reiki? Is there something you're bringing that's unique that no one else is? And then how can you potentially double down on exploring and realizing that?
2: Yeah, I appreciate the word niche because that's my language in terms of business. So I really understand what you're saying here. I think I was trying to figure out some sort of style, but if I think about it in terms of a niche, I I get that. Like that resonates with me.
4: Like I'm just imagining kind of this energy because there would be, I can only imagine ways to depict Reiki with watercolors. There could be where where people who've just experienced or received energy work, then even though they may not be, you know, watercolorists, if that's the correct terminology, but um, would then actually pick up watercolors to try to reflect on a canvas what they've just experienced.
3: Mm, yeah, oh, I'm getting excited now. <laughs> that sounds so great. <laughs> well, yeah, and we just we just Googled ReikiWatercolor.com and and doesn't exist. So there you hey, go on it.
4: <laughs> there it is rush go, head to go daddy right now or space. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>
3: right. <laughs> um, what are the missing pieces here that you would need as some scaffolding to get to that end goal
4: ideally at least this is what has worked for me is narrowing it to a particular thing so for example more narrow than just say impacting people through art and healing. Well, it could be that, um, what ultimately I, I want to do is create some type of retreat. Or is it that I? love this medium of expressing myself through watercolor and I really need to go deeper into it. So it's not that I need to build sales or anything, but I actually want to get better at my ability to do that. So am I actually going to take classes or find a mentor like that to Mm -hmm. help guide me in that?
2: Well, Erin, you literally said the things that um, I've thought in my head. I really, one of my dreams is to run a retreat um, and as well as um, I was thinking I probably do need to. I think part of my insecurity is I don't have a full schooling in watercolor. Um, and So I think maybe some additional classes, especially a mentor. We, I just moved to this part of Southern California. So it'd be really nice to connect with some local artists and just have chats about art, you know, and hang, hang with my peeps.
3: Here's our next tip. You don't have to have all the perfect qualifications in place before experimenting and even taking a project public. Aaron has a story about violinists who decided to create a yoga retreat for musicians.
4: They ended up as musicians, they were both violinists, ending up falling in love and having this passion for yoga. And mm-hmm. it impact their ability to play in these really profound ways, so on and mm. so forth. So they created retreats for mm. yoga for musicians, and oh, wow. this was very interesting because they were actually applying for uh, a, an entrepreneurship grant through one of our programs, and they came in. One of the questions we kind of had, you know, like a Shark Tank type of panel, and and one of the questions then was posed: Well, oh, okay, so are you a um, you know a, a licensed, certified yoga? instructor. And neither of them were at the time. (laughs) And so, and, 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 but I also love that, right, as an entrepreneur, because, you know, do you actually need that to start, right? So one of the things they did was look and say, ah, you know what, within the next six months, we will get certified as we do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So again, adding Mm -hmm. that functional, almost operational capacity to what was just a pure passion. (laughs)
3: <laughs> you, can, you can kind of pursue them in parallel, it sounds like. Thank you for that permission slip to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a great model, too, to know that this is out here. There are the, the violinists who started doing yoga retreats. That's really cool. Of course, none of this is easy. It only sounds that way in hindsight. For Aaron, there were plenty of highs and lows in his journey before he got to where he is today.
4: I initially started out at Penn State and thought the same thing, I'm going to just do this, be a soloist, so on and so forth, but then I thought, oh, do I want to? Ultimately, it led to me actually dropping out from college for four years, um, where very, you know, financially tough times and getting evicted and all these types of things, almost being homeless. While you were doing um, your music? Uh, so initially, yes. And mm-hmm. then life circumstances were so hard, mm-hmm. I did not even practice. I mm-hmm. just was trying to survive. Um, I ended up uh, working, uh, getting a job in a mailroom was one of the first times I had kind of consistent income. I was making mm-hmm. $13,500 a year. and um, But I was surrounded by everyone. And all they did was live for the evening or for the weekend, mm-hmm. right? They hated their job. Mm-hmm. And I just looked around and went, Oh, my God, I don't want to spend my life like this, I can't. So that helped really help me build that sense of, okay, how do I pragmatically give myself the greatest number of tools so that I can choose what I do for my life, not have someone else choose.
3: After Aaron returned to his undergraduate studies, he launched his own nonprofit called The Sphinx Organization, which worked to recruit more diverse musicians to play classical music. But it was a struggle early on. And then Aaron reached out to some mentors for help, including some pretty big names.
4: Isaac Stern was considered, you know, certainly like probably the greatest violinist, you know, of our uh, generation before he passed. And um, when I launched the Sphinx organization, initially the Sphinx competition, I invited him to come to the inaugural competition. You know, how would he come? (laughs) I'm just some student, you know, uh, undergraduate student starting some weird thing. Um, But he came. And then reaching out to Robin Williams, uh, you know, who would have thought? I had no network to him. I literally pulled his name out of a celebrity directory at the time. And long story short, he ended up helping me to pay off my uh, student loans so that I could return to school, which I did with this sense of, oh, my gosh, I now want to do my art, my music making for my life. Uh, and, you know, and profoundly, you know, he profoundly obviously changed the trajectory of my life.
3: So there's some audacity in that, right? And just, you know, why not? And I'm sure there are other people you wrote yes. to who didn't respond, right? Let's be honest, you know. But oh, way more. <laughs> yes. So he was
4: the one, you know, where 99 others said, you know, uh, no.
3: Like 10 ideas, not one. 100 people, not one. Uh, mm-hmm. Aaron, any Absolutely. parting wisdom for those of us who maybe don't yet think of ourselves as artists uh, for how to live a more creative life?
4: yeah well i would absolutely say to follow the passions that you have in life like don't settle for what you know others including our parents tell us it is your life right it's no one else's and um and ideally do everything you can to architect that life Mm -hmm. don't let the universe happen to you you should happen to the universe around you
2: i am just sort of moved to tears, um, just in terms of gratitude for this conversation, because to hear your story and an artist sort of validate my story and take the time to really give me some practical advice and some, honestly, some great career advice.
4: (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you. I am inspired by you, your story, um, and everything that you're doing in Mm -hmm. life. So I look forward to keeping in touch.
3: Thank you to Elaine for sharing her story with us and to Aaron Dworkin for his amazing advice and poetry. Check out his books and all of his artistic work at his website. We'll put a link in the show notes. And by the way, we got a great voicemail from Elaine.
2: Hi, Amanda. I was so pumped up after our conversation. I joined the local arts council here in my area and in the directory there, I saw that there was a watercolor teacher who has classes once a week that I can attend. So I'm so excited to start those classes starting next month. Thanks again.
3: Right on, Elaine. You're on your way. Thank you for letting us know. And don't forget us when you're famous. What about you? Do you have a problem in need of a creative solution? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produced this episode with help from Katie Shepard. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley, thanks for listening.